Hello and welcome to National League Town, Mets fandom, Mets history, Mets life, with Long Island's own Greg Prince and Jeff Heisen. Hey, Greg. Greetings from my virtual sweatshirt closet, Jeff. I have taken a pair of scissors. I am mindlessly, but purposefully, cutting the collar up a little in remembrance of Irene Cara, who gave us the theme from Flashdance. Much like Irene Cara said in What a Feeling, we like to take our passion and make it happen here every episode. Uh, Irene Cara, who died this past weekend, uh, we will remember your name. Thanks for the music. On today's show, we look ahead to the 2023 schedule and we remember Dave Hillman. But first, what's going on? Not much is the answer to that. We expect a lot of Mets news to happen before the winter meetings and certainly during the winter meetings. Billy Epler has some heavy lifting to do as he has many free agents to replace or resign. He's got the fan pressure of rebuilding a 101-win team. The fans aren't going to be happy if they have a quick exit from the playoffs once again in 2023. So there's a lot on Billy Epler's plate, and I'm not talking about leftovers from Thanksgiving. But for now, things are quiet. The Mets made what's considered to be a minor trade, acquiring Eliezer Hernandez and another pitcher in exchange for a minor league pitcher. Eliezer Hernandez is a righty, and I mentioned him by name because he will be seen at spring training, and he could compete for a role in the rotation, if not as the long man in the bullpen, if they don't re-sign Trevor Williams. He certainly is bullpen depth. The Mets also bid Dom Voyage to Dom Smith. I had one encounter with Dom Smith, and that was at spring training in 2020. This was early 2020 before we knew that spring training would come to an abrupt end. I went to a practice before the games began. There were ropes between the fields. There are multiple practice fields. And you could see the players go from one field to the other as they did one drill or and, and won one field and went to another field to do something else. So the players walked between the ropes and the fans were on either side of the ropes. And when Dom Smith walked by, the fans were jubilant and he was so gracious to the fans. And the fans would say, Dom, I was there when you hit the big home run against the Braves to end the 2019 season. And so many people said that to Dom that it made me think of the old expression that if everybody who said they were there was actually there, no one would have been home and there would have been a million seats taken up by the fans. I don't know how many people were actually there, but Greg, you were there. I was there and I was yelling at Dom Smith, not in Port St. Lucie, but from a seat up in the Excelsior level, I believe it was the 11th inning. And I had actually looked away ever so slightly to respond to somebody on Twitter about something unnecessary at that moment as he swung and left to my wife, a uh, super fan that she is, to uh, slap me on the shoulder and said, look, <laughs> looked up and there's a ball going out of City Field to win the game and end the season, the regular season, not a postseason, but what a way to end a season in 2019, probably the highlight of 
all of our lives as Mets fans between 2016 and 2022. Probably the highlight of Dom Smith's stay as a Met. That was a uh, a strange moment for Dom to have taken over only because Dom hadn't had an at-bat in two months at that point. And as I think about Dom in the non-tender pile now, not officially with another team, but the Mets, I suppose, have made it clear to him that their intentions are to move on. There, there was always this sense that I had that you, you kind of forgot about Dom Smith if you weren't thinking about him intently. If you did look away from his at-bats, it felt like he was on his way for a long time. Number one draft pick in 2013. That was the draft pick a lot of people wanted to cast to the wind because Michael Bourne was a free agent the preceding winter. The Mets didn't have a center fielder that they knew about. You may remember Sandy Alderson's phrase, uh, mortal phrase, at the time when he was asked about the outfield. And he said, what outfield? His way of saying, yeah, I don't know either. But the Mets did not sign Michael Bourne. They held on to that pick. They picked Dom Smith out of high school in L.A., and he took his time coming up to the big league, sort of like the guy the year before, Brandon Nimmo, did. And he had kind of an up-and-down first couple of years where, on one hand, if I'm recalling correctly, hit nine home runs from about the middle of August to the end of the season, which used to be they'd put your picture on the cover of the media guide the following spring if you showed that much promise and power. But at the same time, Dom Smith hit under 200 and was not really ready yet. So he spent a lot of 2018 going up and down, trying to learn to play left field because he did not take over first base. And left field probably wasn't his position. I, I seem to recall at least twice him and his his fellow Wunderkind, Ahmed Rosario, running into each other on pop flies which uh, did not make for a wonderful visual, but he persevered and he could always hit. Not a lot of power, not, not the kind of power he showed as a rookie, and not necessarily all that much faith for management because they did send him down a lot, even when you thought he'd established himself. And there were always injuries, or at least there were enough injuries. But then we get to the end of 2019, and he hits that amazing home run off the Braves, a game that had gone back and forth, a game that by all rights should be a Mets classic if it had a little more context to it besides lovely memories. <laughs> 2020, which I think is when you saw him in spring training, became his signature year. Uh, we were sort of counting on Dom, and we weren't counting on what became of 2020, the COVID year, but he gave us a hell of a ride for 60 games the year that they were experimenting with the DH, where you would have thought, well, Dom, you go DH and let this new guy, Pete Alonso, with all those home runs last year, take over at first base it kind of switched there dom dom was our man and dom was the guy we followed and you know i'll never forget dom and michael conforto kind of emerging as team leaders in the aftermath of the jacob blake shooting and the mets following the example of a lot of professional sports uh not wanting to play the next night laying down a t-shirt that said black lives matter at home plate and repairing to the clubhouse and postponing the game and we heard well, you'd have to call Dom's testimony about what it was like to be a black man in America and to be a black player in the major leagues. And you got a great feel for the guy who you saw fleetingly and the humanity, not to mention, you know, in your case, you got to see the friendliness, I guess, a few weeks before you saw him in spring training. I saw him at the what appears to be the one and only Mets Winter Fan Fest uh, in January of 2020. And he was very popular with the fans. and. 
there was, again, this is one of those phrases that won't, may not even make sense now. There was that cookie club energy <laughs> the core of the Mets had in those days because we, we learned through intrepid reporting, I think it was Anthony Tacomo's, that the Mets batters would get together on the road, talk about hitting, order cookies late at night from a company called Insomnia Cookies, which I had never heard of before. And they called themselves the Cookie Club. And during the pandemic, that became kind of a Zoom thing. And they would bring each other on. I think it was Dom and J.D. Davis did most of the hosting. And they'd bring the other players on. And they'd remind you why we love this team and why we were excited to get them back in 2020. And the team didn't do very well in 2020, but Dom did. And we had big expectations going into 2021. And it just feels like they faded. And I I mentioned, I guess, uh, somewhere after the World Series, watching Reese Hoskins and just thinking about Dom Smith because they came up at almost exactly the same time. And Reese Hoskins, now this counted on starting first baseman, power hitter, guy the Phillies know is part of their future. And Dom, who just faded uh, under Buck Showalter. I'm not putting it on Buck Showalter necessarily, but it felt like the entire Dom Smith epic all in one in 2022 Got some big hits early in the year. Never really got his average up. Never saw a lot of time after a while. The DH was not the answer for him. Got injured uh, right before the All-Star break. Never came back. Uh, Not from injury. They just left him down in Syracuse. And even traveled with the team, I think, late in the season on the taxi squad. But they never activated him. So, you know, when the the word comes down, he's been non-tendered. It's not surprising. It's sad. But it's also understandable. So a guy who I think gave his heart to the Mets, gave his heart to baseball, not done, by the way, I would hope not. Still, what is he? I think 27. So a lot of baseball ahead of him, one hopes. It'll be somewhere else, almost certainly. The Mets went in another direction for their designated hitters. I'm sorry, it's not Dom. I'm sorry he couldn't put his foot down at first base and at least lay claim to uh, to some of that job. And Pete going off to DH now and then since we have that position. Dom Smith were to walk by on the other side of the rope right now. I guess I would wave and I would do a little squealing in his direction and say, hey, I was there at that game with the three-run homer. So I uh, identify with those folks in St. Lucie that day. And what what can we do other than than wish uh, Dominic well? Agreed. I liked having Dom Smith on the team, not just for his presence and his bat, or at least the potential of his bat, but I like that the Mets had a black ball player when there aren't a lot in Major League Baseball. We saw that in the World Series when neither team had a player who was African-American on their active roster. And um, as you said, spoke up uh, during the 2020 season. I don't think MLB does enough to cultivate uh, getting black youths involved in baseball. I thought Dom was a great example for New Yorkers. It's so strange that it's 2022 and we have to use language that probably would have seemed more appropriate in 1952 about, isn't it great that there's a black ball player on the Mets? But that was kind of Dom's role, whether he sought it out or not, and certainly stepped up for what he believed in. And he convinced his teammates uh, the importance of his mission. Remember, the, uh, the immediate aftermath of the Jacob Blake shooting uh, he's the one who takes a knee. Nobody else joins him. The remarks he made that night, he said, it's, it's not about the other players on the team. It's about America. It's about being treated the way he is outside of the ballpark. But 
from that night forward, I suppose you, you couldn't look at Dom and not think of those moments. And when he talks about some of the things he had gone through, you know, you, you realize, you know, as, as if you don't realize it enough, all of these guys are human beings and they all have to put up with different burdens, uh, onuses, whatever the phrase would be. And in Dom's case, sad to say, he's got more in front of him perhaps than J.D. Davis did or that Pete Alonzo does. And, you know, we're Mets fans. We, I always like to say the only thing I'm interested in is from an ethnic standpoint is that the Mets are full of metropolitan Americans. <laughs> I re- remember uh, you know, when Omar Minaya was the GM initially and they talked about Los Mets because the Mets suddenly had Pedro Martinez and Carlos Beltran and, and a number of Latin American players and they were kind of marketing that. Uh, and there was backlash because I don't know why there had to be backlash. I thought it was great. I think it's great when the Mets have the best players possible. Uh, you know, in a broader sense, it, it's, it is kind of sad that baseball may not have the best players possible because there's a subset of Americans who may not be interested in playing baseball, who have not been reached out to, for whom it is not as relevant as some other endeavors are. Yeah, if, if the Mets had gone to the World Series, Dom Smith uh, probably wouldn't have been playing it, and that would have been too bad, too. So this is a weird time for Major League Baseball, and I know they've done a lot, or at least they've attempted to do a lot. They've, they've done the RBI programs. Uh, I think Dom might have come up through one of those. Um, don't quote me on that, but I, I think there was some of that, and he uh, you know, certainly instigated programs to help players where he's from in LA. So it, it is definitely something that you think about with Dom Smith. You know, also the homegrown player. There's something to that. There's a guy who who you watched. You know, we, we've talked about Brandon Nimmo a few times. These were guys who had long, hard climbs up the minor league ladder. You were aware of them because they were number one picks. I mean, somebody like me who doesn't really focus on the minor leagues too much, you know, was waiting for them. And it just so gratifying when those guys make it and stick and they come through in moments like that last game of 2019 or often in the 2020 season or that I guess it was a five run ninth that we kind of we kind of forgot about in, in light of the seven run ninth uh, that came along in Philadelphia but that game where they beat St. Louis Dom had a huge hit there I wish he was still here to be honest I wish it had worked out better I understand from a baseball standpoint they had Daniel Vogel back uh, signed again, and he's kind of your left-handed designator incarnate. I, I hope it uh, comes together for Dom. Uh, good, you know, to, to put it in a very broad sense, good guy from, from everything we can tell. And, you know, just maybe just needs to play regularly, find his groove, and some team will benefit. And we'll be here next year cursing the fact that he just beat the Mets a game. And uh, we, we won't feel uh, so wonderful about him the way we tend not to. It was a good run uh, when it was good. It was always a warm feeling watching Dom. And I'll, I'll always have a very warm place for that those last couple of months of 2019 culminating as it did in Dom Smith uh, being embraced at home plate by all of his teammates. Exactly. Best wishes to Dom wherever he goes. Unless it's in the NL East. Then moderately good wishes. Good wishes in your life. Maybe not against Met pitching, Don. Thank you. (laughs) Before we move on, I want to correct myself from 
way back the first few minutes of the show when I said, mentioned the other players in the Eliezer Hernandez trade were minor leaguers. Stop writing your letters. I know that you're going to write a letter to our mailbox about it. The Mets also acquired Jeff Brigham, who's 30 years old, so it's not a kid. He pitched 16 games with the Marlins last season and pitched with the Marlins over four seasons. So perhaps we'll see him in spring training as well. The Mets traded right-hander Franklin Sanchez for those two players. He's a minor league pitcher. And another player that the Mets claimed was William Woods off waivers from the Braves. So we might see him at the end of February in Port St. Lucie. I imagine we're going to see a lot of pitchers for a lot of slots because the bullpen has opened up the pending free agent re-signings. Because right now, other than Edwin Diaz at the back end, uh, is is anybody who was there last year uh, still around uh, for next year? I mean, I'm probably exaggerating slightly. Drew, Drew Smith. Smith. Okay, he's he's yeah. going to have he's going to be throwing a lot of innings. It just Ed, Drew Smith is the setup man for Edwin Diaz, and that's it. As of I now. think so. Well, Drew, Drew, Drew Smith, I don't know what his relationship was with Dom Smith, but from a selfish standpoint, I will no longer have to distinguish between D. Smith and D. Smith uh, when I write something. So there's that, I suppose. But, uh, you know, I've probably seen both of these Marlins pitchers and they probably either cursed them out or said, yeah, we, we got a hit off that guy. And uh, I apologize for, for not having more of a sorting mechanism in my mind for all of Marlin mania. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's, it's like every relief pitcher every spring, you know, the, the names pop up. If they make the team, then they make an impression and hopefully for the better. Uh, this is very broad and very general, I realize. But it occurs to me that, you know, guys who are going back to uh, Trevor May a couple of years remember reading, hey, Trevor May, this is a great get. I was thinking, I guess I don't know enough about Trevor May to, to make an assumption. And now I'm like, oh, is Trevor May leaving? That's too bad. It's it's just the, the way of the world with, with relief pitchers. And we, we talked about when, when Edwin Diaz was resigned. Is, is he going to be okay for the rest of his contract? I'm like, you know, no, nobody's okay for the rest of their contract <laughs> for the most part. But it's a lot of lightning in a bottle. You, you talked about pressure. On Billy Epler, I, I don't know how much more he has than the other 29 GMs, but you know, there's a lot of personnel out there to sort through. And you, you talked about a heavy lift and, you know, he's got to be uh, we want him to be Schwarzenegger and pumping iron. Right. We want him mm-hmm. to pump us up. There'll be somebody sitting besides Drew Smith and Edwin Diaz in that bullpen. And it might be uh, some of the guys you just mentioned. Might be guys we haven't even thought about. Who knows? Might be even some guys we've heard of. Well, you mentioned D. Smith and D. Smith, but if Billy Epler doesn't fill the spots adequately, it's going to be, to quote Long Island Zone, D. Snyder. Mets fans are going to say, we're not going to take it. We want to rock. Greg has a tradition at Faith and Fear and Flushing that we're going to import to National League Town. And it's something that fans of Faith and Fear look forward to. I'm going to scoop faith and fear and reveal it on National League Town. So uh, those of you uh, who read faith and fear, uh, no spoilers for for, uh, your fellow readers, please. But it is the end of November. The beginning of December uh, is, is the week we are in right now after Thanksgiving, before Hanukkah and Christmas. And if you are a Mets fan, you are already fed up with all of it. You just want to get on to next season. We know. It is not that simple. 
We know that the season ends and then the next season begins. My question was, years ago, at what point does last year, or I should say, at what point does this year become last year? What point does next year become this year? Not in the calendar sense. I can read a calendar, but in the baseball sense. So in the, in the lab with a team of geological and astronomical scientists, or perhaps just me alone, <laughs> I developed something called the baseball equinox, going back to the offseason between 2005 and 2006. Very simple. The baseball equinox is the exact midpoint from when the final out or action of the, the last Mets season was to the scheduled first pitch of the next Mets season. Final out usually, but once in a while you get lucky and you get Dom Smith hitting a three-run homer to end the season. So it's not necessarily the last out. But, and this is Mets oriented. It has nothing to do with other teams playing in the postseason. However, this year it is contingent on postseason action because the Mets season ended in the postseason. I, I think we've established that. Game three, October 9th, sometime after uh, 10.30, I guess. I, I have it written down. I, I have the, the final answer, which is what, what you're interested in. But it ended on October 9th. Uh, next season begins... What, March 30th? We know what time first pitch is scheduled in, in Miami. So without further ado, you can celebrate New Year's Eve. I hope you will. New Year's Eve, a date that's uh, very special to me. Uh, you can celebrate New Year's Day. You can watch all the football you like. And then you rub your eyes. You have a cup of whatever. On January 3rd, 2023, at 7.11 and 30 seconds in the evening, Eastern Standard Time, Tuesday, January 3rd, 7-11, colon, 30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time is the baseball equinox. At that very moment, if you feel something in your bones, in your soul, in your system, whatever system that may be, it will be because we are at the exact midpoint between the 2022 Mets finishing their business, which unfortunately was Starling Marte grounding out, and 2023, which will be whoever is throwing the first pitch for the Marlins, probably Sandy Alcantara, to whoever will be standing in. We hope it's Brandon Nemo. We just don't know that yet. That's the midpoint. That's the baseball equinox. So you'll look up in the sky. You'll see a baseball flying directly over your head. And you will say, we are on our way. And by 7, 11, and 31 seconds, we will be in the 2023 baseball season state of mind. Mark your calendars. I know you were, you were planning on writing to Jeff. I know you're on your way to the post office. You're getting some stamps. You're going to complain about mm-hmm. Jeff Brigham, if that was his name. Jeff Brigham, is that his yeah. name? Yes. Not Jeff Brigham? Okay, I was going to say Jeff Bingham. Going to complain. Stop complaining about Jeff Brigham already. Get out your calendars and whatever devices you use, 7, 11 p.m. and 30 seconds on uh, Tuesday night, January 3rd, in the Eastern time zone, uh, just accordingly for your own time zone. If you're not in the Eastern time zone, if you're not in the Eastern time zone, you should be setting your wristwatch to Mets time anyway. So there you go. The baseball equinox. We're not there yet. We're, we're actually introducing it pretty early in the process. I usually wait until we get a little closer, but, uh, you know, I wasn't on a podcast last year. And uh, Jeff said, I really like the baseball equinox. And I said, uh, not so fast, because he, he was asking for this about five minutes after the postseason ended. I said, we got to wait till December. And this episode, I believe, drops on December 1st. Something to look forward to, folks, besides, you know, another episode of National League Town. Yeah, Greg, Greg didn't reveal it to me 
in our pre-show meetings. Otherwise, we would have gotten a sponsorship from 7-Eleven since the Equinox is at 7-Eleven on January 3rd. But let's talk about the 2023 schedule. And if you're following along at home, you can take out your pocket schedule or look it up online. We're not going to go through it series by series, but we are going to pick out some highlights. And it's worth noting because the schedule is very different this year. You play everybody. You play the Marlins fewer times, and you're guaranteed to play the Mariners. That's a short way of looking at it. The Mets will play their division opponents 13 times. So two visits away, two visits home, not three and three. 13 times four is 52. That's 52 games within the division. Then you will play six or seven games versus the rest of the National League. So strength of schedule might come into play. If you're playing seven games versus the Pirates, it's better than playing seven games versus the Cardinals. You're going to play six or seven versus the rest of the National League. And then you will play every team in the American League every season, three at home or three away, and then it will alternate. Unless you're playing the Yankees, then it's four. The Mets get a bonus game against one of the best teams in baseball, I'm sorry to say, while other teams will have an easier interleague foe. So three, unless it's the Yankees, then it's four. It's weird thinking about this, isn't it, Greg? It's weird thinking about a schedule at all. I just got through with the Equinox, and now you're asking me to think about 162 little boxes. One thing I'll say about a schedule in advance, much like with the Equinox, uh, I hope it starts on time. There's no reason to think it won't. But we've just lived through three years since Dom Smith's home run. So we were luxuriating in a few minutes ago uh, where none of those seasons started when we thought they were going to release that were printed. We know 2020 became a 60 game ride at the end of July, thanks to COVID. And then the Washington Nationals tested positive for COVID. And then last year, the lockout pushed things back. But just listening to you describe the math that goes into it makes a person uh, yearn for the simplicity of uh, the the 12-team National League, two six-team divisions you knew every year. You were playing 18 against your division and 12 against the other division. And if you wanted to play teams from the other league, make the World Series, why don't you? Baseball is trying, I suppose, in its way to broaden its horizons for its fans and get people excited at the idea that if you're a fan of the Mets, you will see everybody. You'll see every player who you otherwise don't see more than every three years, the way it has run. And you won't see the Marlins as much. Somehow the Marlins are always the team a Mets fan thinks of when we think of divisional play, because it does seem like we, we play them more than anybody else. It's odd that they drop the schedule as they do in August, which I guess they've been doing for a while now. Uh, it, it feels like something that, that shouldn't be revealed until later in the, when you really need it in the offseason, something to really obsess on. I wasn't interested in who the Mets would be playing in April of 2023 and August of 2022, but I, I think this is sort of like that, that weird nostalgia you get. You get all the news you need right away. But wasn't it really fun to go out and, and buy the paper in the morning and then learn something? But they tell us in advance now. And I suppose that's good for anybody who's planning on, on going to travel to see the Mets somewhere or just to go see baseball somewhere else. Otherwise, the schedule is pristine. 
and it's exciting. And then as soon as it starts, it's just what needs to happen. <laughs> it's what needs to happen 162 times. And it's hard to say what will be important in the course of the year, because I'm sure there's some three game series that looks tremendous in its dauntingness and its crucial nature that by the time we get there, it'll be, oh, well, that team isn't any good and uh, we, we can take them. Like you said, there's really no going through it a la Mike and the Mad Dog circa 1993. Packers, that's a loss. Lions <laughs> at home, that's a win. Uh, I don't think we want to do that. But it will be strange when you consider with all these one-off series versus the American League, what's going to happen if there's a few cancellations? Look at the three games against Detroit in early May. I'm a series I'm thinking of going to. The Mets have a game on Monday, then they go to Detroit Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, then they have a game on Friday. It's possible it's going to rain in Detroit. So let's say two of those games are rained out. Is no other series against Detroit to make those up. So right away, you'll have an issue with trying to find open dates in the schedule. I checked with Rob Manfred, and he said, it never rains. You don't have to worry about that. Everything's fine. Basically, you can bet on it, he said. You can bet on the fact that this schedule is great, and he will take yeah. your money. Yeah, this uh, you know was one of those things. You know, When I said 162 squares on a schedule, I was thinking there was a time where you wouldn't have said 162 because you knew in advance there were going to be some doubleheaders. That is long gone. And we know that there's makeup doubleheaders and day-night doubleheaders. Well, that's going to become a thing if some storm clouds over the Midwest in the middle of May or whenever we're playing the Tigers and multiply that by all the teams. That will be interesting. You would almost think you would need to just kind of keep a week around at the end of the season our penalty time uh, mm. that they have in soccer, just uh, yeah. we'll call these makeup days or, uh, you know, snow days like what we had when we were kids. And they, if you didn't use one, you got an extra day off around Memorial Day. I imagine they take it in consideration and then they just say, hey, it won't rain. It'll be fine. And I'm sure at some point in 2023 will be, oh, my God, when are they going to make up that Tiger series or that Guardian series or whatever? We'll just roll with it, I guess, as baseball has for 150 plus years. What, what do we say so often? We'll hope for the best. The Mets will start the season with seven in a row on the road, including the aforementioned Marlins. They finish the exhibition season against the Marlins on a Sunday. Then they sit around in Florida. Maybe they'll have a get together at Max Scherzer's house in Jupiter or the Alonzo house in Tampa. And then the Mets open against the Marlins that Thursday. So Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday off. They open with four in a row against the Marlins, and then they go to Milwaukee before coming home to play, yes, the Marlins. A lot of Marlins early in the season. And then three games with San Diego. What's the press going to talk about, Greg, during those three games when San Diego visit City Field in April. They're going to talk about how the Mets have gotten even for last year because the Mets have just swept the Padres in April of 2023, we hope. I hope you get that on the nose and not in the ear. And then the Mets go on a road trip, and it's a very early road trip, 10 games on the West Coast, which means that the Mets will have 17 of their first 23 on the road, which could be good because it means they have many more games at home the rest of the season so an early trip to the west coast in april for the mets 
We'll hope that the sun over the uh, Oakland Coliseum or whatever it's called this week is not as punishing in April as we saw it could be in early fall. And we talked about 1973, what it was like in October. Listen, that's a, uh, to a paraphrase Ian Eagle when he calls Brooklyn Nets games, that's a man's schedule. He calls it a man's jam uh, when somebody puts down the ball in a uh, particularly impressive way. You go to Oakland, you go to Los Angeles, actual Los Angeles, not Anaheim, and you go to San Francisco. That's a lot early. It's, it's better, I think, than going to Colorado and Minnesota the way they did one year about 10 years ago uh, and, and encountering uh, bone-chilling cold and snow and trying to literally dig your way out of that. But like you said, at least it'll be out of the way and there won't be that looming West Coast trip that you think is going to end your season the way it sort of did in 2021 and the way it, it often does. Again, you're going to be coming off that sweep of the Padres by then. So the Mets will have a, a taste for California blood. And the Mets make their second and final trip to the West Coast. Last season, they went three times, including that weird one-off series to Oakland in September. The Mets go to Arizona and San Diego right before the All-Star break. And it's noteworthy because those are the final games that the Mets will play on the West Coast for the season. They will be done. And for all of the fans on the East Coast, which is most of us, we won't have the disruption to our sleep schedule after the All-Star break, because following the All-Star break, the Mets' furthest trips west will be in Kansas City, St. Louis, and Minnesota. So nothing past the central time zone. That's great, isn't it, Greg? You know what's disappointing? You mentioned the All-Star break. The All-Star game will be July 11th. Why, why is that disappointing? That is the 50th anniversary of my first game at Shea Stadium. I was hoping the Mets would be playing that day and I could uh, be there on July 11th, hopefully in City Field. But yes, it will be unusual to get the West Coast out of the way. It will be welcome to get the West Coast or the Southwest in the case of Arizona. I think Arizona gets away with murder, quite frankly, not being thought of as part of the West Coast in our baseball consciousness because I, I find myself fighting off sleep more against Arizona at those games at Chase Field uh, than I do possibly anywhere else, uh, you know, g- give or take a, a slug of caffeine. Yeah, the Mets need to uh, to finish strong. Here, how's that for analysis, folks? The Mets need to finish strong before the All-Star break, as they need to finish strong in every single series they play, I suppose. But yeah, we'll come home after the All-Star break, and we can enjoy seeing them. I can go celebrate my 50th anniversary of going to Met games uh, that week, maybe. And we can look forward to to not going further west, like you said, than Kansas City uh, the second half of the year. And 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 no uh, no horrible flashbacks when we go to Kansas City either. Two other things to note about the schedule: a lot of white spaces on Mondays. I wonder if that's on purpose to try to fill in for rainouts. That's a good point. Uh, I'm I'm actually tr- trying to play along with you, and I'm looking at a linear. Uh, listing of the schedule, not looking at the boxes. I'm taking your word for it about the, uh, the white spaces. That's a good idea. Players perhaps being a little better rested, maybe. And something that we've discussed offline, a lot of 405 starts at City Field. Especially on uh, Saturdays, right? Yeah. Saturday night in April is crazy. And uh, Saturday 2.05 p.m. Is, is what we remember growing up with many, many, many decades ago in our lives. 
And I think Saturday afternoon baseball is just preferable to Saturday night baseball, especially before the summer kicks in. I think four o'clock is the sweet spot. You know, you, you have time to do whatever you need to do and you have a game and then you have your Saturday night, whether all that Saturday night means is not being up super late to watch the Mets or who knows, maybe people still go out on Saturday nights. What do I know? I think four o'clock pending shadows and whatever we'll complain about. If uh, those somehow come into play in a bad way, bring it on. Well, here's to lots of W's and writing them onto your pocket schedule in 2023. Dave Hillman passed away. You may not have heard of Dave Hillman because he only pitched in 13 games for the Mets in 1962. At the time of his passing, he was the oldest living Met, 95 years old. Just because he only pitched in 13 games doesn't mean he's not worth remembering because, as we said last time, anybody that wears the Mets uniform is worth remembering. We certainly take it upon ourselves to remember a player like Dave Hillman, even though, listen, we don't remember watching him. I'm not a fan of saying this, but I will because it's true in this case. I wasn't born when Dave Hillman pitched. I was born. I was... I was in utero, but I was not born. And I don't know uh, if my mother was standing in front of uh, Channel 9 when he uh, got into one of his 13 games. But if you keep track of Mets long after their careers are over, you were aware Dave Hillman, even though Dave Hillman was not a famous Met or a famous baseball player outside of where he was spending the rest of his life, which was Kingsport, Tennessee, which seems sort of appropriate considering the Mets have had, or until recently, a, a farm club in Kingsport all those years. I don't know if uh, Dave Hillman ever availed himself of Kingsport Mets games, but you know he was a professional pitcher in the 50s, pitched for the Cubs, pitched for the Red Sox in the early 60s, went to the Reds, and he became, if not exactly an original Met, I know uh, Dave Bagdate, author of A Season in Mudville, or A Year in Mudville, excuse me, <laughs> and I go back and forth on the definition of original Met. He was not on the opening day roster, but he got here pretty quickly. He got here at the end of April. The Mets already knew they were looking for more answers after the first set of answers they submitted the first few weeks of the season turned out to be not necessarily the right one. So the Mets acquire this veteran right-hander, about 35 years old or about to be 35 years old at that point, which in those days sounded a lot older than it does now. And listen, he was a 62 Met. He had a few good games and some more games that you would not call all that great, but he was on the 62 Met, so he was in good company. And I think what strikes me about Dave Hillman and wanting to know a little more about him other than oldest living Met, which by the way, is an incredible thing to say about anybody on your team. There have only been three oldest living Mets, if you think about it, since 1965, when Warren Spahn and Yogi Berra joined the team. Uh, Up till then, you know, your oldest living Mets were in their 40s, I guess. Both those guys at the the end of their careers became Mets, and they both lived a long time. Warren Spahn until 2003, and Yogi Berra until 2015. Yogi was the first Met to break the 90-year-old mark, and when he died in 2015, it fell to Dave Hillman to say oldest living Met and Warren Spahn's in the Hall of Fame. Yogi Berra's in the Hall of Fame. Dave Hillman was simply living his life in Tennessee. He was sent 
to AAA Syracuse, then as now, that I guess it was late June, early July of 62. And he said, I've had enough. I, I, I don't think I want to be told I'm not good enough to pitch for the 1962 Mets and try to work my way back. Uh, his family was was in the uh, clothes retailing business uh, in Tennessee. He said, you know what? That's a good business for me to be in. Uh, I'm not going to pitch forever. And it's, I don't know that he used this phrase exactly, but he could have said, this is 1962. I did not have a very lucrative contract to uh, take my time and think about what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. I'm going to go sell some clothes. And that's what he did. And he went about his life being a former Met and a former Major League Baseball player. And from all indications, a very gracious man who would give his time to anybody who asked, hey, what was it like being on the 62 Mets? And he answered in so many words, well, it wasn't necessarily that great because we weren't very good. But he was very nice about sharing his experiences, sharing his signature when people wanted. And I don't know if he ever came back for any kind of old timers day way back when. He wasn't there this year. Probably would have been difficult at age 95. But he was part of the team. And even when you, you haven't seen those guys, you, you kind of feel something. I want to ask you, Jeff, because you're, you, you always kind of leave, leave it to me to talk about these guys. And I understand why, because I do a lot of historical research. But do these guys resonate for you on any level other than this was a guy who played for the Mets? I and mean, what do you think when, when you hear a name, Dave Hillman, who I know you didn't see either, doesn't mean anything to you knowing that a 1962, 1963 Met passes? What does that say to you? It's still important whether or not you remember them because of the fact that they were pioneers. They may have been sent to the Mets kicking and screaming, but they were part of Mets history. And it, it was only a short period of time between 62 and 69 that the Mets went from lovable losers to champions of baseball. And it, you needed somebody to start it. You needed somebody to get the ball rolling, and Dave Hillman was part of that. So it does make me feel sad when any one of them passes away. And played 60 years ago, which if, if when we were getting into baseball, if you were told that somebody, you know, this is let's let's say 1969, and you read something in the paper about a player who last played in 1909 had died, that would have seemed impossibly ancient. Just as seven years seemed impossibly long from 62 to 69 when I was absorbing that as a kid. But you know, you're absolutely right. I mean, other than just being a decent human being and feeling bad that somebody has died and somebody's family is lesser because their father, their grandfather is no longer with them. Uh, people he was friends with missing him. It is not to be uh, overly sentimental about this. And, and certainly we are capable of disproving this sentiment. But, you know, once a Met, always a Met in your heart, I think. And even if you miss them, even if you weren't born or you were a toddler and you, you weren't uh, checking your 1962 pocket schedule, which you were more likely to get than you are a 2023 pocket schedule, by the way, sadly, you do feel a little something. And, you know, the, the torch, such as it is, is passed to a, I think, a more familiar figure in Mets history, Frank Thomas, who hit 34 home runs in 1962. And now, at 93, is the oldest living man. I believe I did a, a quick search of my files while we were chatting. And I think 14 is what we're down to in terms of 1962 Mets. If I'm off by uh, one or two, forgive me. It's a cliche, but it's a dying breed. The 1962 Mets, with due respect to the 1968 Mets and the 1977 Mets and any year you can name, 
we still invoke the 1962 Mets because it means something. It means something in Mets history. It means something in baseball history. This is a, we talked about Dave Hillman not being a particularly famous player. It's a famous team. Uh, even if it was, in theory, famous for the wrong reasons, uh, they transcend that. They transcend that record. And yeah, 13 games for the 1962 Mets. Who among us wouldn't have wanted to, in some way, experience it? Maybe not the losing, but uh, to, to feel like being in on the ground floor of something or you know, the very beginning of the next floor. Because like I said, he wasn't there on opening day. Uh, like you said, the team was on its way one way or another, and Dave Hillman was a part of that. And man, to survive being part of a team that was in 10th place the whole time you're there, pretty much, and was destined for infamy, and then you live 60 years, because like a lot of these guys who we, we wind up talking about who, who pass away in this day and age, they're made of pretty strong stuff to have survived uh, losing 120 games, so... As always, we, we appreciate the opportunity to remember these guys, even if we don't personally remember them. I appreciate the opportunity to learn more about these guys and to share a little bit. And I, I appreciate those who, who help tell their stories. Dave Hillman, thanks very much for being a part of the Mets. Our condolences to Dave Hillman's family. Rest in peace, Dave Hillman. Well, Greg, we've done it again. We said that there wasn't much to talk about. Our guest canceled for today. Over the weekend, I saw my brother... And he was telling me about how podcasts are too long, sometimes even this one, and we still managed to go for about 50 minutes. And I know that your brother can listen to us for not quite as long a period of time because I just found that out. And hey, thank you for indulging us. Uh, we're just here talking. And if you fast forward through any of it, well, rewind and listen to the rest of it, please. Hey, we, uh, we like to talk about this team. We like to talk about its history. We like to talk about our fandom. I think you've probably figured that out unless you're tuning in for the first time. If you're tuning in for the first time, welcome. Hope you'll be back whenever our next show is. Which will be next week as we recap the winter meetings. Until then, I'm Jeff Heisen. I'm Greg Prince. And as always, let's go Mets. Copyright 2022 music provided by the Royal Arctic Institute. Check them out on Spotify.